morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 33. Genesis chapter 33. We're going to be covering both chapters 33 and 34 this morning. When we left off last time, Jacob took his family and possessions and headed for home in Canaan after having been in exile for 20 years because of death threats from his brother Esau. After making a peace treaty with Laban and establishing a boundary that neither one was to cross, Jacob now had to contend with Esau, who for all he knew still wanted to kill him. Jacob sent messengers to Esau, hoping for peace. But what he heard back was that Esau was coming to meet him with 400 men. Jacob was between a rock and a hard place. Laban to the north, and Esau to the south. Jacob was terrified and sent waves of gifts to Esau, hoping to pacify his anger. After struggling all night with a man identified as God, or the angel of the Lord, Jacob then went south across the Jabbok River to rejoin his family. And then Jacob saw Esau coming with his 400 men. Would Esau kill Jacob? and then kill or sell his family into slavery? The moment of truth that Jacob had been dreading had now come. Let's start by reading verses 1 to 3. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau, coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children up front, Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Let's pray. Lord, since I take a very minority position on one of our topics this morning, I pray for discernment for your people to know whether my interpretation is accurate or not. And Lord, we also ask that you would open our eyes to see the practical application of these chapters for today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jacob put his two servant wives, Billah and Zilpah, up front with their children. If Esau wasn't content with murdering Jacob, the servant wives and their children would be next. If that didn't pacify Esau, Leah and her children would be next. And finally, Rachel and her only child, Joseph, would be last giving them the most time to escape. Jacob's sinful favoritism was on full display. Jacob then went out to meet his brother. The moment of truth had come. I suspect that Jacob was greatly surprised by what happened next. Verse 4 says, But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And they wept. Now, 20 years earlier, as Jacob was fleeing from Esau, God had appeared to Jacob in a dream of a stairway to heaven. He promised to be with Jacob and to bring him back to the land. During those 20 years in exile, God continually blessed Jacob, showing that God was still with him and was keeping his promise. God even appeared to Jacob three more times, assuring him of his presence and blessing. And yet, even after all this, Jacob was still terrified of Esau. But now Jacob finally comes face to face with Esau and finds that his brother has forgiven him, holds no grudges, and accepts Jacob with open arms. 
Jacob finds out that he had been worrying about nothing. Aren't you glad we never worry about nothing? Then after meeting Jacob's wives and children, Esau asks about the waves of gifts. Verse 11, Jacob says, Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. Because Jacob insists, Esau accepted it. Now what is interesting about this is that the Hebrew word for present in this verse is the same word for blessing. Although Jacob once stole Esau's blessing, Jacob is now returning a blessing. Jacob's blessing or presence were almost like making restitution for the wrong Jacob had done to Esau. In verses 12 to 15, Esau then says, in my paraphrase, come on, Jacob, let's go home. But the personality of Jacob the deceiver did not change overnight when he wrestled with God. Jacob had no intention of going home with Esau. For one thing, God had promised Jacob the land of Canaan, and Esau lived in the land of Edom. So Jacob makes some excuses, promising to follow his brother Edom at his own pace. And when Esau and his men are finally gone, Jacob takes a sharp turn and heads west. After stopping briefly at a place he called Sukkoth, Jacob crossed the Jordan River and settled within sight of a village known as Shechem, which was named after the son of Hamor, the ruler of that region. Hamor's son, Shechem, will soon become the major focus of this story. Jacob bought some land within eyesight of the village of Shechem and set up an altar to God. He called it El Elohe Israel, which is literally translated God, the God of Israel. But in Hebrew, it would be how they would say the mighty God of Israel. Israel, of course, was the new name for Jacob. The God of, J God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel had now become Jacob's God as well. All that brings us to a very puzzling story in chapter 34. We don't have time to read the whole chapter this morning, so I'm just going to summarize it for you. By the way, whenever I summarize something, you should always go back later and read the story for yourself to make sure I've summarized accurately. Summaries are often interpretations, and pastors do make mistakes. Anyway, here is my summary of chapter 35. Dinah, the daughter of Leah, went out to see the women of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of that land, saw her, he raped her. But he loved her and spoke tenderly to her. So Hamor and Shechem went to Jacob to negotiate a marriage. When the sons of Jacob came in from the field and heard what had happened, they were furious. Hamor told them that his son Shechem longs for Dinah to be his wife. So Hamor suggested that they make a deal, that the tribe of Jacob and the village of Shechem all do business together, and that Jacob's daughters, he had more daughters than just Dinah, and the daughters of that area join in marriage and all become one big happy family. Shechem added, Ask whatever bride price you want, and I will pay it. Jacob's brothers later interpret that as if Shechem were treated Dinah like a prostitute. If the sons of Jacob answered, excuse me, the sons of Jacob answered deceitfully, saying that if the men of Shechem would just become circumcised, they would agree to the deal and become one with the Canaanites of that area. 
Paymore and Shechem went back to their town and spun this as a deal which could increase business and marriage opportunities for the town. The men agreed and got circumcised. While the men were still in considerable pain from their circumcision, Simeon and Levi took their swords and slaughtered every man in town. They then captured all the women and children and looted their homes. When Jacob heard what they had done, he was furious. He told his boys, You have made me stink to the Canaanites who live here. If they gather against me, we will all be destroyed. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? So, that, so that's chapter 34 in a nutshell. Now, to be perfectly honest, before I started studying for this sermon, this story had never made much sense to me. I mean, I understand how a young woman visiting a strange town might be violently raped. But then the rapist falls madly in love with his victim and speaks tenderly and wants to marry her? That didn't make sense to me. Rapists don't generally speak tenderly to their victims, and they certainly don't want to marry them. Rape is not as much about sex as it is about violence and degrading the victim. It's never about love, and yet in this case, the rapist is so much in love with his victim that he is willing to undergo the painful ordeal of adult circumcision to marry her. Does that make sense? Not only that, but the girl's own father doesn't react like a father seeking justice for a daughter who has just been violently attacked. In fact, he doesn't seem to be all that concerned about it at all. And besides all this, Hamor, the ruler of that land, and his son Shechem don't seem to think Shechem has done anything wrong. They approach the whole thing as a negotiation for marriage and not as restitution for a violent crime. I keep telling you that the past is like a foreign country. They do things differently back then. But even so, this story just didn't seem to make sense to me not even for people living in Jacob's time. But as I was studying this more in depth, I found out that a small minority of scholars don't think this was a brutal rape. I found out that in verse 2, the NIV phrase, he took her and raped her, is an interpretation of the Hebrew text. The King James translates the Hebrew more literally as, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. It is entirely possible that this was about the defilement of an unmarried couple having sex and not the kind of rape where a stranger brutally attacks and sexually degrades his victim. So let me give you another possible scenario. Dinah goes into town to meet with the ladies. She also meets with meets Shechem. And then in verse 13, or when verse 13 calls Shechem a young man, the implication in Hebrew is that he is just a teenager. It is likely that both Shechem and Dinah are just young teenagers. They keep on meeting, fall in love, and both want to have sex. But Dinah protests because sex before marriage would defile her and bring disgrace on the family. But eventually they go too far, and Dinah reluctantly tries to stop him, but Shechem won't stop. Dinah may be angry and upset about it afterwards, but not enough to leave Shechem. In fact, 
When verse 26 says that Dinah was still in Shechem's house, Dinah may have chosen to stay with Shechem rather than go home because she might have been afraid of what her crazy brothers might do to her for disgracing the family. So Shechem assures Dinah of his love and insists that he wants to marry her. He says, my father and I will talk to your family and arrange a marriage which will remove or at least lessen the dishonor and defilement. Now, I think this possible scenario makes much more sense of the text than the alternative about a brutal rape. It much better explains the love Shechem had for Dinah. It explains why Jacob doesn't seem to be very upset about the whole thing. It explains why both families approach the issue as a marriage deal rather than a matter of restitution for a violent crime. Now, as I said, this is a very minority scholarly opinion. Fortunately, we don't have to decide whether this was a boyfriend who refused to believe that no means no, or whether this was a brutal rape by a stranger, because the main points of the story are the same anyway. Hamor and Shechem meet with Jacob and his sons to offer a proposal. Let Shechem marry Dinah, and let your people and our people intermarry and do business together. And the Israelites and the Canaanites can all become one big happy family. But regardless of whether this was a boyfriend who got out of hand, or the brutal rape by a stranger, Shechem has shamed Jacob's family. Honor and shame were a huge deal in that culture and Dinah's brothers are out for blood. Verse 13 says, Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. Verses 14 to 17, Jacob's sons deceitfully said they would agree to the deal as long as all the men of the village of Shechem would get circumcised like Jacob and his sons. Shechem loved Dinah so much, he agreed to the terms. But how could they possibly get the men of the village to agree to be circumcised? Shechem and his father were apparently skillful politicians. In verse 24, they went to the gate of the city, which was where town business was conducted. Archaeologists have dug up Shechem. It was a small town in Jacob's time, roughly the size of Hampton. So the marriage and business opportunities may have been limited. <clears throat> so Hamor and Shechem spun this arrangement as a good business deal. Shechem's tribe will become one with us and give us more options for marriage and business. I'm not sure how much choice the men of the city really had, so they agreed to the deal. Jacob's sons, of course, were not interested in converting the town to Shechem. They just wanted vengeance. Now, most of Dinah's brothers were half-brothers. But Simeon and Levi were full brothers. So in verses 25 to 29, while the men were still in considerable pain from their circumcision, Simeon and Levi, maybe with help from some servants, took their swords and slaughtered every man in town. They then looted the homes and took the women and children captive. Now, just as a quick rabbit trail, about 25 years after Jacob, Jacob's time, Muhammad was familiar with Jacob, and this is how he often handled tribes who refused to accept him as ruler. Now, I personally think that the death penalty should apply to those who brutally rape someone. 
So if Shechem brutally raped Dinah, I would be very sympathetic with Simeon and Levi for killing Shechem. Remember, in those days, there was no court to resolve an issue like this. But any way you look at it, what Simeon and Levi did went far beyond justice. To slaughter all the innocent men of the city and take their wives and kids captive was just plain evil. And Jacob was furious. Not, however, because it was evil, but because he was afraid of retaliation by other Canaanite tribes, as it says in verse 30, verses 30 and 31. And by the way, when Moses later writes about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, people today think that is barbaric. But it is likely that this law was given precisely to limit the kind of barbarism that Simeon and Levi did to the innocent people of Shechem. In other words, you can punish murder by executing the murderer, but not by killing a whole town of innocent men. Anyway, one of my biggest questions about this chapter is that, in my opinion, the idea of a brutal rape just didn't make much sense of the context. While I am sure it would make a huge difference to Dinah, whether she and her boyfriend went too far and he wouldn't stop, or whether she was violently raped by a stranger, it doesn't make any difference to the point of the story. So that leads to an even bigger question. What is the point of this story? Why did Moses bother to include this R-rated story in Genesis anyway? Actually, there may be several reasons, but I'll just give two possibilities. First, this story helps to set the stage for the long story of Joseph that concludes the book. Joseph was the youngest brother and was probably not old enough to have been involved in any of this mess. But the story shows that Joseph's brothers were not virtuous, God-fearing young men. They were vengeful thugs who, as we will see in coming weeks, would even stoop so low as to sell their own brother into slavery. Much more important, however, has to do with Jacob's relation with the Canaanites. Jacob's brothers demanded that the men of Shechem become circumcised. Now, circumcision was a sign intended to separate Abraham's family from the idolatrous and perverted Canaanites around them. But in chapter 34, Jacob's sons pervert this sign for the purposes of vengeance. It becomes simply a sign of a deceptive proposal in which the Israelites and Canaanites would become one big happy family. Hundreds of years later, when Moses wrote Genesis, the children of Israel were preparing to enter the Promised Land. And one of the biggest concerns is that they would become one with the pagan idolatrous Canaanites. So I think one of the reasons Moses may have had for including this story is to make the point, do not be unequally yoked with Canaanites. It will lead to disaster and they will lead you away from God. So are there any practical lessons we can learn from these two chapters this morning? Well, first, as we just saw, one of the biggest points of the story was that children of Israel were not to become unequally yoked with Canaanites. Similarly, in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul says that Christians are not to be unequally yoked to unbelievers. No matter how much you love someone, or how much you think he may be right for you, if you are a Christian and marry someone who is not a Christian, you are violating God's command for your life. 
God did not give this command because he's a cosmic killjoy, but because he knows what's best for you. The question will be, do you trust him or not? By the way, that doesn't guarantee that if you marry another Christian, your marriage will be all joy and bliss. Marriage is the union of two sinners. But if you marry another Christian, at least you are standing on the same foundation of Jesus and his word. And if both husband and wife truly love Jesus, that should make a difference. Second, Jacob offers a huge gift to make peace with his brother. Matthew 5.19, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers. In Romans 12.18, Paul writes, If it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There are certainly times to take a stand and fight for what is right, but we should never be people who like to stir up trouble for trouble's sake. We should be people who even go out of our way to make peace with others. Finally, although Jacob cheated Esau out of his blessing and inheritance, and Esau was mad enough to want to kill Jacob, Esau eventually put the past behind and genuinely forgave his brother. Matthew 6, 14 and 15, Jesus said, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Esau forgave his brother. As Jesus might say, Go thou and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we have a church where your people tend to be peacemakers and not troublemakers. What a blessing. May that heart for you continue. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.